Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi there, it's Megan Mitchell from Agents of Change. Thanks for checking out my podcast. If you enjoy the content, please check out my ASWB test prep courses for the bachelor's, master's, and clinical exams. Each Agents of Change course includes more than 30 key topics that closely match the ASWB KSA content areas. Our content is great for both auditory and visual learners and includes video walkthroughs, supplemental materials, hundreds of practice questions, and twice monthly live study groups with me. You can learn more and get 10 free practice questions at agentsofchangeprep.com. This is Megan Mitchell with Agents of Change Social Work Test Prep, and today I'm going to cover a topic that spans all levels of the exam, and that is setting specific tips. So we will go over some of the common social work settings, what you can expect, what the work looks like in these settings, and how you can apply this knowledge to the exam. So what do you need to know? Why is different setting information important? So as you know, social work is very diverse. Social work can be practiced in a variety of different settings. This can range anywhere from hospital work, private practice, school, inpatient, corporate. There are so many different places that social workers can practice. However, most people specialize in one area or practice area. Sometimes even in master's programs, you are kind of locked into a specific track. Maybe you did a clinical program or maybe you did a macro program. However, this test requires you to have knowledge of multiple settings. And this can really trip people up because maybe you have never worked in a nursing home setting or maybe you've never worked in a school setting. Maybe you work primarily with adults, so working with young children is out of your repertoire. So it's going to be important for the test that you have knowledge of multiple settings, including when and how you would intervene, some common things that come up, some common problems that come up, and some intervention strategies for each setting. The setting might directly impact how you will intervene because the scope of practice differs. For example, what I would do in a school is probably very different than what I would do in a hospital setting. There could be some overlap, but there's going to be a lot of differences in that work as well. I encourage you to focus on areas you are unfamiliar with, and that is because you might see questions come up about settings you've never worked in, and you don't want to be caught by surprise. I often hear people saying, I got so many Um, adult protective services questions, and I work with children, so that was hard. So you always want to make sure that you are assessing your knowledge and you're focusing in on the areas that you're unfamiliar with or areas that are new to you because those are going to be your weaker areas, and that's where you're going to want to fill in those knowledge gaps. So let's start with our first setting, and that's hospital settings. And let me preface this by saying these are just general 
notes. This is not exactly what you would do day to day, but this is for test purposes. You do not need to be an expert in every setting, but you do need to know the basics of what goes on in the settings and what some of the symptoms clients might be presenting with. So in hospital settings, as a social worker, you're going to want to determine why they're in the hospital, right? We usually are in the hospital for some sort of reason. This could be for a medical or mental health reason. But why is the client hospitalized? Is this something that is a routine procedure? Do they have a medical emergency or do they have a mental health emergency? So you're going to want to collect information to understand why the client is in the hospital. Remember, in hospital settings, you may be working as part of a multidisciplinary team. It is important that all team members are on the same page. Remember, when you're in a hospital, patients are interacting with many different professionals. This might be doctors and social workers and physical therapists and speech therapists. It really depends. Depends on what the client is there for. Depends on what their recovery is like and what systems they need to be working with. So you, as a hospital social worker, are going to probably have to work with people that are from disciplines other than social work. It's going to be important that you are working in the best interest of the client. And sometimes this might be bringing a perspective that is different than the medical perspective, because social workers, we operate from more of a client strengths-based approach. Conflict resolution and open dialogue should be practiced practiced if there's disagreement amongst team members. You might not always have the same solution, but it's going to be very important that you are able to appropriately dictate your point of view and why you think that whatever it is you are suggesting is best for the client. Also important to note in hospital settings that you want to make sure your notes are accurate and up to date because oftentimes people do rounds in a hospital. So if you don't put in your notes and it's something that's very important, the next person or the next provider or practitioner, doctor, nurse, whoever seeing that patient will not know what's going on. So it's very important that your notes are accurate and up to date in the hospital setting because they're seen in a patient's file by many different professionals. The next is school settings. In most school settings, you will be working with minors. That means 18 years and younger, and that's because school-aged um, youth and children are generally, right, pre-K all the way up to 12th grade. But there are other situations where you might be working with adults in school settings. But make sure you know, and the question, it will tell you if you're working with someone that is a minor or not. If you are working with minors, you need to know your obligations as a mandated reporter. If you suspect abuse or neglect, report to CPS. Remember, we are not there to investigate. We are there to report our suspicions. What CPS does, that's going to be different, which we will have a slide on um, child welfare. But in the school setting, if you suspect abuse or neglect, report. In school settings, social workers do not administer testing for special ed or diagnosed disabilities. And let me explain what this is. That is because as we can do screeners, right? These disabilities are going to be for special education. So we're not going to say the child has a specific learning disability. We're not going to say that the child has a developmental delay in the school setting because there are a lot of different 
procedures. There are a lot of different protocols and standards. And in a school setting, this should be completed by a psychologist. So we should not do educational testing. Like I said, I've done screeners for ADHD. I've done screeners for autism, but I am not the one that is diagnosing that disability. That may vary, but generally for the test, you should not be doing psychological testing unless you are trained to do so and you have training as some sort of psychologist. Collateral information from teachers, school staff, or parents may, may be needed to understand what's going on, to understand what the client's presenting problem is. Collaboration with teachers is often needed because they spend a lot more time with the students than we do. We might see the students once or twice a week. They might see the students eight hours a day. Um, it's also important that if it's appropriate, you talk to the student themselves and you wanna make sure that you get information from parents about how they are presenting at home versus the school setting. I've so many times had parents come and say, my child is having such a hard time at home. They're not listening. They won't do their homework. And then we meet and we say, we're not seeing any of those same behaviors at school and vice versa. We might see behaviors at school and they might not see it at home. Why is this important? School is very different than home. You have to think of how many more interactions they're having socially. There's just a variety of different differences that would make behaviors present in different ways. So those are some things to know about school settings. And oftentimes when you're working in a school, you would do the services during school hours or in the school building. So that's important to note. And also important to note that you want to make it so the child can access the curriculum and access the school environment. Next is child welfare. Um, it's called different names, different agency acronyms from state to state. You might be heard it referred to as child protective services or child and family services. It's the same thing. CPS workers often investigate and assess safety and severity in abuse and neglect cases. So this would be, they would most likely be screening calls for abuse, and then there are caseworkers that would work directly with the families. Important for CPS workers to know that safety comes first. It's important to note on the exam when it notes that you are just mandated reporting versus when you are a CPS worker working directly with a case. Those are different things. When you they have already engaged with Child Protective Services, you need to determine if the case has been taken on and if the report has been substantiated. As a mandated reporter, you report and then CPS takes it from there. The goal of Child Protective Services is, is family preservation. I think um, there's many different barriers that um, stop CPS from doing what its intention is, right? They're overworked, their caseloads are huge, but the goal ultimately is family preservation. So families often think very negatively of CPS. They think, oh, they're going to remove my children, but that's not the goal. They, the goal is to provide wraparound services, provide support. Removing the child from the home is often a last resort, and this would be if safety could not be um, up, upheld and it would have to be in some sort of situation where the agency felt that it was a better situation for the child to be removed than to stay with the family members. But generally, family um, 
making sure the family unit is intact is going to be the number one priority. Permanency planning might come up on the exam. This is the process of assessing and preparing a child or youth for long-term care outside of the home. So they might be going to stay with a grandparent or someone in the family unit, or they might be preparing to go through foster care or kinship care. And you would just want to make sure that you are preparing the child for this, establishing what some strengths of the client would be, building upon those strengths, and kind of problem solving for some problems that may occur because removing a child from the home, even if it is through family members, um, it can be very difficult. So it will be a lot of planning with the child, planning with the receiving family as well. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Inpatient or psychiatric treatment. So if you get a question on the exam that says your client is in an inpatient facility, you need to think about risk assessment right? There's probably a reason why the client is in inpatient services versus outpatient services. So think of why a client would go into inpatient services. It's probably because there was a pretty severe threat of harm to self or others, right? Or some instability in safety that made it necessary for the client to be under inpatient care. So risk assessment is crucial. You need to determine if the client is safe and able to make decisions on their own. This is a big one because if they are in a place where they're not able to think clearly or make decisions on their own, that could potentially change confidentiality. It could change right to self-determination. So make sure that you understand that and you're assessing for mental health status with clients in inpatient or psychiatric treatment. Communication with other team members is also going to be key for safety. Biggest thing is making sure the client's safe and making sure the staff is safe. And here you might be doing a lot more intensive supervision of the client. They might be under 24-hour supervision. You might be checking in more so to make sure that the client is safe. Clients generally cannot be discharged if they are considered to be an immediate danger to themselves or others. So if they're actively suicidal or homicidal, you'll need to determine if they can be discharged or not. In a lot of states, if you do put an involuntary hold on a client, they will have to be hospitalized for a period. It's usually 48 to 72 hours, and then they can leave on their own accord. They can, If a client is hospitalized involuntary, they have to still be under supervision, but they can refuse treatment. So just so you know, that it would be if they were put in an involuntary inpatient psych psychiatric treatment. The goal is always, of course, to not have to get to that point where they're in an involuntary hold situation. You would want to work with the client to have them go to a treatment facility or to um, an inpatient program on their own or doing it with you or with a trusted family member. But that's not always the case. So in cases where we feel that the, the client is a danger to self or others and it's an immediate risk, we would have to go forward with an involuntary hold.
community-based settings. This might be community mental health or different religious-based um, nonprofits, a variety of neighborhood community services. So community-based agencies, some of our most vulnerable clients, think of why this might be. Usually they're low cost and they provide many wraparound services. They're in the communities, so they're easily accessible often. And they provide social services and care to address community resources needs. This could be clothing. This could be housing. This could be um, applying for benefits. This could be a variety of different things. But the goal here with community-based settings is you want to provide community resources, promote overall health and wellness, improve functional ability. So we want them to be able to function in their home settings, in their outside settings, and reduce social isolation, right? And a lot of times these clients are socially isolated or are vulnerable or do not have many resources at their um, that they can access, which is why they would be coming to the community-based agency. It's important that their basic needs are met first. So you want to think of the hierarchy of needs. Are there housing needs met? Are there food needs met? Are there clothing needs met? What can you help them with? If they have children, you want to assess for the needs of not just the client, but of the whole family that might be children, that might be partner, et cetera, et cetera. Clients may need referrals to outside agencies for additional support. So say they need help with transportation resources. You might need to refer them to another agency that would be able to provide that. So if you do work in a community-based setting, you want to be very familiar with the community, what their needs are, and what resources are available. You're going to want to build a really good referral network, right? Um, who should you go to for employment? Who should you go to for job assistance? Because you'll you'll most likely be working together to be able to provide those wraparound services for clients. So wraparound approach is very common, and you want to make sure that you are providing referrals that are accessible and are going to be helpful for the client. So I'm not going to refer the client to an agency I know is not able to best meet their needs. So it's going to take a lot of community knowledge when working in community-based settings. Administration or management. This is going to be more of that meso and macro level of social work. So if you are in an administrator role, you're often responsible for oversight. And this could be of policies, supervision of staff, supervision of programming. And you're going to be doing, like I said, a lot more of that administrative macro level work. So if there are problems at the agency, it is important to examine your agency's policies and procedures to make sure they're in line with the agency's mission. So if you're in admin or management, you might be looking at mission statements, you might be doing staff training, you might be working closely with HR, you might be developing employee handbooks, you might be working with supervisors, a variety of different things that are going to help the agency best serve its mission and best serve whatever client system that they are targeting. When an admin or a someone in a management position is collecting feedback, they should have feedback. It's best to do a 360 approach, right? So it should be coming from not only their staff members, but also from clients. 
We want to know from clients if they're satisfied. It's not going to be helpful if our agency is providing services that are not helpful or there's a lot of barriers for the clients to access these services. So feedback should be coming from as many avenues as possible and including all the stakeholders that are at play. It's important that admin and management um, personnel are properly training employees and giving them the tools they need to be successful. You want clients to be happy, you want your staff to be happy. And oftentimes there's a big breakdown with employees being overworked or overwhelmed because there's not enough resources. That maybe there's not training that's appropriate or maybe their caseloads are too big. So it will be a lot of problem solving and thinking of ways that you can eliminate barriers for employees as well as clients. Those were some of the main areas of social work that you might see on the exam, knowing that there are so many other settings as well, right? There are so many different settings because social work is so diverse and our skills are needed in such a variety of different places. Here is a practice question. I'm going to read it and then we will do process of elimination to get to the correct answer. So let's test your knowledge. In the first session with a school social worker, a high school student reveals he frequently skips classes and drinks during the school day. He said his mother is not aware of his behavior and he often produces fake sick notes to account for his absences. What should the social worker do first to support this student? A, inform the student that the social worker has a responsibility to inform his mother about his behavior. B, speak with the student's teacher to obtain collateral information regarding his behavior and attendance record. C, report the case to CPS as underage drinking may warrant a safety concern. D, explore the reasons for the student skipping classes and the factors contributing to the behavior. So what should we do first? We work in a school, high schooler, important to think of developmental level of the student. And what we know, is this is our first time meeting with him. So we're gonna to have to think with teens, we want to build rapport, we want to collect more information. What is his presenting problem? Frequently skipping classes, drinking during the school day, and then when he is out, he's producing notes giving him excuses for being out without his parents' knowledge. So we know our who is a high school student, our what, we know that that's the presenting problem. Where, where are we working? We're in a school. So it's important to note, we need to think about how this behavior is affecting school performance or how does it tie into school? Who, what, where, when, when did this begin? It does not really say, right? So we don't know if this has been going, been going on for an extended period of time, but he says he frequently does it. So we would want to unpack what frequently means. So we have our who, our what, our when, our where, why is a social worker needed? Because, we need to figure out what is going on with the student. Why is he engaging this behavior? And how can we provide solutions to make sure that the student is in school and safe? So let's go ahead and do process of elimination. And remember, this is a first question. So you might do some of these things at different points throughout the helping process, but we need to find the starting point first. So what would I eliminate? I'm going to eliminate C, first, report the case to CPS as underage drinking may warrant a safety concern. We do not need to report to CPS for underage drinking or drug use. 
unless we feel that the student is a danger to themselves or others. We don't have anything here that would suggest that. And there are so many instances where high school students are engaging in underage drinking or underage drug use. So you do want to do a lot of psychoeducation and you'd want to like help them understand how their behavior or how these actions are contributing to other things. But it does not necessarily warrant a CPS referral. CPS would be even more overwhelmed if than they are now if every time a, a teen disclosed drug or alcohol use to us, we were reporting. Okay. And also, it's important to know when working with teens, they should know when we will disclose and when we won't disclose. So make sure that they are aware of that as well. So C is out. I'm also going to rule out A, inform the student that the social worker has a responsibility to inform his mother about his behavior. We are just trying to build rapport with the student. And from what we see here, we don't have enough information yet to determine that he's a danger to himself or others and that his parent would need to be informed. We don't have enough information yet. So that leads us to B and D. Do we speak with the student's teacher to obtain collateral information regarding his behavior and attendance record? Or do we explore the reasons for the student skipping classes and the factors contributing to his behavior? Think of confidentiality. We are not gonna go directly to the teacher without permission from the student to ask more information, right? The student might not want that information shared with teachers. You should only share with teachers what the student feels comfortable with um, because that would be a breach of confidentiality. I work in a school and a lot of teachers want details sometimes. I can only tell them if parents have agreed to share that information with them directly. So process of elimination that leads us to D, explore the reasons for the students skipping classes and the factors contributing to the behavior. Why do we do this first? We need more information. It says he's skipping classes and drinking during the day. What does that mean? How much is he drinking during the day? Is he having, you know, a few sips of alcohol or is he drinking extensively? Right? Why is he doing this? There could be a variety of reasons why he's skipping school. Is he feeling that there's social pressures? Is he not doing well in school? Is he bored in school? Are there issues with parents? So he's skipping classes to kind of escape from that. Why is his mom not aware of his behavior? So many different things to consider. So we need to get more information first. From there, we would be able to make a treatment plan and discuss next steps. So when safety is not an immediate danger, you want to always collect more information to see what is going on. If you're looking for more study content, you can check us out on agentsofchangeprep.com. We have tons of free and paid materials, something for everyone. Our contact information is here, agentsofchangeprep at gmail.com. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. And thank you for tuning in. Good luck to you wherever you are on the studying journey. And remember that you got this. Thanks.